I guess I'll wait five minutes. Just kidding. Looking back over the years at Calvary Baptist Church, there's been a, a number of visions stated by previous pastors. I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, church fam. Uh, the last one was uh, touching lives for eternity. Is that, Bill's shaking his head at me. He's one of the deacons here, so I, I agree. He agrees. Uh, but, but I want to kind of change this vision for the next five to ten years that, that this would be the vision of our church. I'll give it to you simply. To know and love Christ. To live in community. And to give glory to God in our calling. So I'm a Baptist, so these all start with C because our church starts with C and it just works out very well. It's easy to remember. Christ, community, and calling. These are the three things which make up our vision. And over the next three weeks, we're going to walk this out. That as a people of God, collectively, not individually, as a people of God, what are we about? What's, our, what's the mission? What's the vision of this church? And it's this. Know, know and love Christ. Live in community and give glory to God in our callings. Meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at this morning knowing and loving Christ. And why would that be the foundation of all other aspects of our ministry here? Why would that be the foundation and the vision for all other aspects of ministry and life together? And in our callings, we start first and foremost with Christ. To understand where we're at in our text this morning, let me give you a, a very brief introduction to the whole of 2 Corinthians, since it frames up how we should then think about this one specific passage. You see, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church that is rife with problems, such as political factions, moral compromises, rampant idolatry, and the pursuit of fame and wealth. Overall, the church struggled with unity and what it means to be a people who live as one in Christ. And to walk out that unity in life together. And so Paul writes to them 1 Corinthians, which addresses a ton of issues. Which, by the way, I, I love that. Think about it. Scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was wrote sometime in either 54 or 55 AD. Which is only about 20 years post-Christ. 20 years had passed since the death and resurrection of Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. 20 years since Christ was crucified, rose again. And the first church of Corinth is splintering with all kinds of issues. This should cause us to look at our church and to other churches and see in her all of her shortcomings, her failures, her issues, and yet rejoice. Because the first churches struggle with many of these same problems. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address a lot of these issues. And he sends young Timothy with the letter to the church to set them straight. However, when he gets there, Timothy finds a, a church that is now even more deeply divided. Deep-seated division was in their hearts. As a matter of fact, some of the leaders of the church had now turned against Paul. And the church is even more splintered. This led to Paul writing the church another letter, which we do not have record of. But Paul mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and in, again in chapter 7. He refers to it as a, as a tearful letter, as a severe letter. He has Titus deliver this letter and ask that the church repent of their worldly views and to reprove the church leader. This letter seems to have done the trick because the church makes a turn towards repentance and towards the gospel. And all that remains, uh, and when he writes 2 Corinthians, is a handful of folks who still cling to the false teaching of people who, who Paul labels in uh, chapter 12 as these super apostles, super apostles. One of the biggest arguments that these super apostles had against Paul and Paul's gospel is that it appears weak, Paul. 
Paul, you appear weak. There's no eloquent words, no fine speech, no great wisdom. The gospel, they said, is not that. But rather, the gospel should be powerful, eloquent, very uh, convincing words. And so this brings us to 2 Corinthians. The worst is over, and Paul needs only to affirm the majority of the church has repented and to correct the minority who remain. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this text, Paul gives what one commentator calls, says is the most comprehensive statement about the death of Christ. And he's doing so, so that the Corinthians will have an answer to the joker super apostles who want to pull, put all their boasting in their external appearances and not on the change that's happened on the inside. In other words, Paul is giving us in this passage the foundation for all Christian ministry. And which is the foundation for ministry for us here at Calvary. We look at this passage this morning from the bottom up. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk backwards through Paul's argument. Because Paul is trying to remind the Corinthian church why they can believe his ministry. And not merely rely on external boasting of others. And so he starts from a high level of the defense for his ministry. And he works his way down to the foundation of it. And so we'll start from the foundation of his ministry and build out to the conclusion that he wanted his readers to understand. So let me give you three points and we'll be out your way. Point number one, in Christ, God has given us good news. In Christ, God has given us good news. Point two, in Christ, God has made us brand new. He's made us brand new. Number three, in Christ, God is using us to persuade others. Those are the three points this morning and then we'll be done. Let's look at in Christ, God has given us good news. Look with me at verse 18 real quick. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, at the center of the church is the gospel, which means good news. It's good news. And at the center of this good news is Christ Jesus. 
Paul wants his readers to understand that everything he's just mentioned, everything from verses 1 through 17, all are predicated on the fact that God has actually done something. So he says there uh, in verse 18, all this is from God. This means that the center of the gospel is a gracious giver. It means that, that God has not given us the good news. Had he not given us the good news, we would be utterly lost and utterly hopeless. But thank God he didn't. Instead, it was through Christ that God was actually accomplishing something. So we should ask, what was God doing? Look at it again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Paul says that this good news is from God, who through Christ, that is through the work of Christ, living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, raising victoriously over the grave and ascending to heaven where he now sits at the Father's right hand. Through all of that, God was on a mission to reconcile you and I to himself. Now, in order for us to be reconciled or made right, and that means that there was something wrong, doesn't it? In other words, for Paul, in order for there to be good news, there must have first been bad news. Think about it. Before Christ, what was your position before this holy God? You see, you and I live in a world without God, not knowing him, not loving him, not worshiping him. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 1, that you and I have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Loving the creation, we worshiped it more than him. That's all of mankind's state. That's your and my state outside of Christ. That is our condition. And if you hear me say, nah. If you hear me and you say, the only thing you can think to yourself is, well, I wasn't as bad as some of those cats in Romans 1. Did you read all the list of sins they had in Romans chapter 1, Pastor? That wasn't my life. I tried to live a godly, moral life, always helping other people, never trying to cuss. I'm, I'm not doing too bad, Pastor. And brothers and sisters, we must not stop at Romans chapter 1 because Paul had you in mind, if that was you. For the very reason Paul wrote chapter 2 of Romans is so that those of you who think you're better than other people weren't too bad, not quite as sinful as those around you, not in the same jam that they are. Well, in chapter 2, he said, no, 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 all of you, all of you. Even if you're trying to live a godly life, a moral life outside of Christ, Paul says you don't even have the right heart in you. And this is a massive problem. It's massive. We don't generally think that this is much of a problem, though, do we? We don't, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this. In fact, we live our lives blind to the fact that we are in need of such a Savior and unable to save ourselves. You see, we reject God. We love His creation, but we hate Him. Think about it for a second. Why did God create you? Why did God create us? Why did God create everything? That's for one simple purpose, that we would know Him and love Him. And yet we don't. This is the plight of all humanity. We were created for the sole purpose of knowing God and loving him, but we don't. This is a massive problem. It's like, it's like owning your own business. And you hire an employee to do a job, a task. And this person never actually shows up to work, still expects to get paid. Or if they do show up to work, they're never doing the tasks of which they've been hired, simply scrolling on social media. As an employer... What would be your review of this employee when quarterly review time cam comes? Would you say, they have never once done what I asked them to do? 
Never once done what they've been employed to do. But you know what? They seem like an okay person, so I'll keep giving them a paycheck. If you're a good business owner, that's not what you're going to say. You probably won't even wait for the quarterly review time. You'll just go to the person straight up and say, hey, look, this ain't working out. You're going to have to find another job somewhere else. Now, if you and I, out of a sense uh, of this type of uneasiness, of actually having an employee with that, this kind of behavior, how much more uneasiness would it cause the Lord of all creation when he, when his, when he creates his creation and says, know and love me, and all they say in response is, nah. It's a massive problem. So Paul says that God, through Christ, was reconciling the world to himself, making it right. And for Paul, that's exactly what God was doing in the work of, the, in the work of Christ on the cross. You see, in Christ, God has given us good news. Look at verse 18 again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, here Paul's going to say, he's like, that is, let me, let me repeat that for you. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Notice Paul switches his tenses here. In verse 18, he says that God, through Christ, reconciled. That is, that, that, that the past tense, that, that God, this is already something God has done. He has reconciled through Christ. So for Paul, Christ's work was the means by which God has in the past tense reconciled us to himself, made us right with him. But he switches the tenses in verse 19. Notice that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. You see, Paul wants to elaborate a bit here on the idea of God having already reconciled us. He goes a bit deeper. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So you see this, don't you? Paul in verse 18 is looking from now to back then. But in verse 18, he says, let's go back into the back then and look at this thing. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It's the same message of verse 18. But he doesn't want you to be left without a definition. What does this reconciling actually look like? What does it mean? The question we should be asking, how does the death of Christ make us right with God? To which Paul answers, your sins your trespasses. Every time you love something more than God, every lie you ever told, every time you malign the goodness of God with your lips, every unselfish, every unrighteous, selfish, angry thought you have ever had, any time you have jealously looked at something someone else had that you wanted, for every instance where you love something more than God, Paul says this, he's not counting it against you. This is, this is scandalous. This is lavish forgiveness. This is such good news that some people hear and say that can't, that can't be true. But listen, it is. God has known the depth of your sin, the depth of your hatred of him and your hatred against other people and yet loves you deeply, fully, completely. Paul goes on to declare this good news in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, for our sake, for all those who would believe through faith that God has actually done this. To them who trust in his name, to them that believe the gospel really is good news for them. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew 
no sin. You see, God made Christ Jesus your propitiation. That is, he took your sins and laid them on Christ. He took Christ's righteousness and laid it on you. He took the wrath which he had righteously had built up for you. And he didn't direct it at you. Instead, Jesus steps in to your place. He fills the gap. He took the full wrath of God. And listen, praise be to God for this. This is the gospel. We should celebrate this. We should live in this. We should breathe in this. And we should believe this. I wonder if those here this morning who have never believed this good news. For you today, I want you to know that God is extending to you this offer of Christ. For you to know him. For you to love him. To come to him. Free from every sin. Free from every condemnation. You can be forgiven in Christ. I don't care how bad you think you are. This last week I was in Richmond, Virginia um, for, for my master's degree. And uh, one, of the, one of the most beautiful things I love about my time away, as, as hard as it is on my family, is, uh, is after the classes all day long, we're in class from 7 to 7 pretty much. And, uh, but, but, but after the classes, we use a couple of me and some friends, some other pastors, brothers, uh, we, we always go out to eat dinner. It's fantastic. Just, we just love uh, each other. And, and we, we just talk about all that we're learning and we talk about the goodness of God and how, how great Christ has been to each of us. But this past week, I learned something new about a brother who I've been uh, having dinners with now for over two years. And he's, uh, he, he had never told me how he had come to know Christ. And here's what he said. He said, Matt, he said, it, it was meth that did it for me. He said, I had been using drugs, doing all the things. But he said, when I took the hit of meth... He said, I knew I had gone too far. I knew I needed help. And he said, Jesus came into his life, turned him around, gave him a new heart. And listen, now this brother serves as a pastor in another city. As a matter of fact, as we got to talk, there was not only just my friend John, uh, one pastor who said he had normally been a drug, formerly been a drug addict, but those two other brothers said, yeah, that's my story too. One of them said, it wasn't meth, it was cocaine for me. Listen, listen, my point in all that is that, that God saves us from our sins. And it doesn't matter how far you want, there's still hope and forgiveness at the cross for you. Jesus really does forgive you because in Christ, God has given us good news. But this isn't where the stories stop. Look in verses 12 through 17, we see that in Christ, God has actually made us brand new. In Christ, God has made us brand new. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul, 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 Paul in, in verse 12, he, he, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. But rather, we're giving you an answer. When those joker super apostles come to you and say, how do you know Paul's legit? He wants you to have an answer. 
Um, not just about outward appearance, but about what is in the heart. Verse 13, right, where it says, uh, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. There's a lot of debate among scholars about what Paul is actually referring to when he says we're beside ourselves. I think what he means here is that, that these super apostle opponents were most likely criticizing Paul, that he didn't have these type of ecstatic moments in the church. And these, these super apostles always seem to be beside themselves and out of their minds. And so Paul sets them straight in verse 13. He says, if he's beside himself, then that's, that's for God. But if he's in his right mind, if he's sober-minded, if he's self-controlled, then it's for the Corinthian church. But notice Paul's argument is moving the Corinthians forward to understanding. That it's not about external things, but about the inward heart, which determines if someone has been made brand new. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Paul is arguing that everything he does, everything, is because the love of Christ controls him. He says that Christ has died for all, and therefore all have died. So that those who who live, that is, if they walk as Christians then they will no longer live for themselves. Don't miss this, church. What Paul is arguing is that because of the death of Christ, you and I can now live as Christ lived. In other words, our justification is the basis for our sanctification. So many Christians believe that it is grace which saves us, but that we somehow need to walk out this Christian life all, all by ourselves. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's the love of Christ that controls us. Our sanctification would not even be possible if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus died for us to justify us, to make us right with God, which now serves as the only reason, the only reason we can walk and live in this life as Christians. Paul says all of this, and then in verse 16, he walks out what this means in his and in our day-to-day life. Verse 16 From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul's point is that at one time, before he was a Christian, before the Lord opened his eyes, he looked at Christ, heard about Christ, and he said, no, thank you. He understood Christ only based on his external evaluation of him. And his external evaluation of him was like, this is a weak man. There's no strength here. He didn't understand the fact that Jesus was good news for him. This is the way that each of you and I, before Christ, looked at him. Before you were a Christian, before the Lord opened your eyes, you looked at Christ when your friends would try to tell you about him, when the preacher would preach about Jesus, and all you saw was weakness and foolishness. It made no sense to you. And Paul is saying, we used to judge everything that way. Everything based upon the outside, based upon these external things. But since Christ has died for us, and we died with him, and now we live in him, He says, we don't do that anymore. Just as a true Christian cannot look at Jesus and say, he was just a weak man. 
It's oxymoronic. You're not a Christian if you say that about Christ. So too is it true that a true Christian cannot look at other people and just judge the outside. Because according to Paul, when people come into Christ, they become an entirely new creation. They are not merely changed bit by bit, part by part, piece by piece. But they're in a moment, instantaneously, miraculously, recreated as a new creation. This doesn't mean sanctification is not messy. It's absolutely messy. Because sin is messy. But in that moment, you are actually created brand new. A new creation. And this type of brand new person is always on mission because in Christ, God is using us to now persuade others. To land the plane this morning, we finally get to where Paul begins his argument in verse 11. Look at it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. This entire passage opens with a therefore, which means that this section... Verses 11 through 21 is logically following uh, and is the logical conclusion of the passage before. And what Paul says in the, in his next, says next is because of what he just said previously. So look at verse 6 with me. Let's look at this quick, real quick. Verse 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, Paul's point in this passage is that you and I all stand before the Creator. All stand before the Lord in judgment and give an account for what we have done. We have to answer for how we lived our lives. How faithfully have we used our time? How well have we pursued opportunities? We have been saved, but not for a life of aimlessness or indifference, but for a life of serving the Lord. And so this leads Paul to verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Since he knows he must give an account to God of how he lives his life, how he lives his ministry, and since he knows the fear of the Lord... He persuades others. The idea is simple. As a Christian, Paul realizes he must share the good news which he has been given. But he doesn't just view this as his task. We're just the task of pastors. We're just a few individuals who seem to be extroverted and don't mind crowds. He doesn't simply see it as his own life's mission, but the mission of every Christian, the mission of every church. Did you notice it throughout the rest of this passage? The continual call and invitation into the great mission of God. Verse 11, we persuade others. Verse 18, God has given us through Christ the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in Christ God has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Church, our mission, our aim is simple. You see, for the church alone has been given the ministry of reconciliation. God intends to reach not just the nations, though he does intend to reach the nations through you. But God intends to reach your neighbors, your co-workers, your family, those in your influence through you. He's entrusted to you the message of reconciliation. 
I wonder, are you, are you living like this is true? This is Paul's reasoning for why the Corinthian church could ignore the super apostle bootleg preachers and actually believe his gospel because his gospel is the true gospel. He says, you know it's true. Look at my, look at my life. I, I, I persuaded you. He says earlier on in chapters 1 and 2 that the, that the Corinthian church themselves are his letter of recommendation. He says, simply look at your own lives. Look at the gospel you've believed. Are you living like this? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you living and walking and talking with everyone in your life as if this news is true? As if Christ is the provision for all people to be made right with God, which, by the way, is true. There is no other way to the Father except through the Son. So in conclusion, Paul has thoroughly defined to the Corinthian church that Christ is the provision for all people to be made right with God, not an external performance. In Christ, God has given us good news. In Christ, God has made us brand new. In Christ, God is using us now to persuade others. We have no other message to tell. We have no other news to share. We have no more revelation from God which we can elaborate on. But we have Jesus the Christ. We have a Savior who appeared weak because he had nowhere to lay his head. Who appeared weak when he stood before Pontius Pilate, silent like a sheep, led to the slaughter. He appeared weak as the Roman guards spit in his face and put a crown of thorns on his head. He appeared weak when he was nailed to that cross. He appeared weak when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He appeared weak when he breathed his last. He appeared weak when he was laid in another man's tomb. And when they rolled the stone in front of the door, he appeared weak. But friends, let me remind you that it is through weakness that God's power is displayed. Because Jesus Christ looked weak for three days as he laid in that tomb. But on the third day, he displayed strength as he got up. They took off them grave clothes. He displayed strength as the stone was rolled away from the door. He displayed strength when he looked death in the eyes and he said, it is finished. He displayed strength when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, changed people's lives. He displayed strength when he saved you out of your sins, out of your mess, out of your baggage. And he displays strength day by day to conform you more into the image of his son. The mission, the aim, the vision of our church is to know and love this Christ every day, in all things, in all conversations, every time we gather, every time we pray, every time we open the scriptures. It's all about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, listen, we have no other message to share. The greatest hope for all the world is Christ Jesus and the fact that God has reconciled us to himself. Therefore, we love it, we believe it, and we live as if it's true because it is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you, Father Lord, that though none of us deserve any of these things, none of us deserve your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, your love. That's why we call it grace, Father. Grace is getting what we didn't deserve and not getting what we did. So, Father, we pray that we would believe this. You would change our hearts. Lord, you've, if we have believed this, and we can rest assured that you have created us brand new. Therefore, we can, 
we can continue to work towards looking more like your son, trusting in the process of the Spirit leading us. Father, because the gospel is true, we can persuade others. We can boldly declare the good news that you have done, meeting people where they are in their sinfulness, in their brokenness, in the rejection of the gospel, in them thinking that it's weak. Lord, you called us as followers of you to share this news. And so I pray you would embolden our hearts. Give us a backbone of scripture, Father. And we believe this and love it. And we look to Christ every day. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.